Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we come before you. You are the God of wonders, and we pray for a sense of wonder as we consider the things of heaven today. Be glorified in us and help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a tremendous joy. I'm so glad to be with all of you this morning. Uh, usually I'm here on an official visit, so to speak, for confirmation, or last time we did baptism and confirmation, and Mike and I are still recovering from trying to put those together. Uh, but today I'm just your preacher, and that is a high privilege. Before I begin to consider the word together, I want to say a word about something that Mike and I and many of the leaders in the diocese are talking about, which is more planting of churches. Now, I suspect that many of you were here as this church got planted in this place. It's a recent memory for many of you. We can forget that every church we've ever been in was planted at some point. I grew up in a church in West Park, Connecticut, and it looked like they'd been there since the Middle Ages. But in reality, it had been planted in the 1940s, just before I got here. Why plant? Well, first of all, to extend the kingdom of God. That's the most important reason. And the fact is that church plants get the gospel to people who don't hear it otherwise. Secondly, uh, it is a deep encouragement to the congregation that plants. It's not a threat. Statistics have shown us over time that churches that plant churches are churches that they, them, they themselves are going to grow. Deep encouragement. You know, Jesus said, given it shall be given to you, and he understands that. And the third reason is that there's a feedback loop from planted congregations to remind us of the, important of reaching, the importance of reaching people around us. And we need that feedback loop if we're going to be faithful as believers. If you will, there's a testimony that comes back to us that God uses powerfully. So I just want to encourage you to keep praying and thinking along those lines. Uh, support uh, your leadership as they consider these things. Uh, it is not a threat to you, it's actually an opportunity to see what the Lord will do through you. And there's really nothing more exciting than that in life, in any area of life. I want to take you back decades now when, to the time that my wife Marcia and I uh, were engaged. I'm sorry that she's not here with me this morning. She's not feeling 100% and, and needed to stay, stay put. But when we were engaged, for the summer of our engagement, we were serving in a ministry called FOCUS, a ministry to private, private school students, uh, and a house was rented at the end, uh, the west end of Martha's Vineyard Island, which is kind of Mecca for preppies. And, uh, and a man named Peter Moore and his wife Sandy uh, established this summer outreach, and we were part of a team that was reaching out to, to students. We had a tradition after dinner 
to head up to the cliff that was near the house and look west to see the sunset. And because we were high and there was basically just water in front of us and then a few islands beyond that, we had a spectacular view night after night. And it wasn't at all unusual at the end of uh, sunset, and people from the island had driven out to see it as well, it wasn't at all unusual after a glorious sunset for people to spontaneously break into applause. Which was the right reaction. We went a couple of summers ago back to the same place, back to another sunset, and this time, while there were a few that were just standing and watching it, I was surprised by the number of people who were taking selfies with the sunset. In one sense, totally missing the point. And there was no applause. When was the last time you stopped and saw the beauty around you and felt wonder? I think in this world of constant entertainment and communication, we are losing a sense of wonder. Wonder reminds us that history is not fundamentally about us, that the world is not just there for us. It's something that brings glory to God. But we are very focused on ourselves. Selfies at a beautiful place don't remind us of how glorious The world is, they remind us how important we are. And sadly, people have even died in beautiful places taking a picture of themselves. It's very easy for us to become self-centered. I remember years ago, a Sunday school teacher was dramatically telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, You know, the person's beat up and people walk by and finally a Good Samaritan rescues them. And finally, she asked her class of children, what do you think this story teaches us? And one little child raised their hand and said, it teaches me that when I'm in trouble, somebody should help me. Which was not exactly Jesus' point. One of the ways to be called away from our self-centeredness is to look at the descriptions of heaven. To begin to think about heaven. To get into the deepest level of wonder as we look ahead to heaven. And that's what we have in the Revelation passage this morning. I'd encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. John writes at one, in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. So you're in a king's throne room, if you will, except it's heaven itself is the throne room. And one was seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It's so glorious that John is using language about jewels to describe it you get the sense that it's almost indescribable. Glorious. Another realm. Another kingdom. Another reality. Maybe we could say creation 2.0. 
And there's a sense of wonder as you go through the passage at its beauty, at God's greatness. One of the things you notice is God's holiness, his set-apartness, which is what holiness means. God is so different than we are. Totally righteous, totally merciful, totally just. And so the people respond, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That phrase of holy, holy, holy is interesting. It's taken from Isaiah 6. In Hebrew, if you say, if you want to emphasize a word, if you want to essentially say very holy, you say holy, holy. You say it twice. To say it three times is to essentially say unimaginably holy, beyond understanding of holiness. Incidentally, it's the only time in the Old Testament that that phrase is used, is Isaiah 6. And John is having a similar vision. And the people in heaven are proclaiming this unimaginably holy God. And then it goes on to say who was and is and is to come. He's the God over time. He always was. He now is. He will be forever. Did you note the phrase, who lives forever and ever, is repeated in that passage? He's above time. He's beyond time. It's hard for us to imagine that. We are so limited by time. We're so aware of time. We have a sense that we never have enough time or that time is running out. Or that we can't waste time. Johnny Mitchell wrote this, we are captive on the carousel of time. But God is not captive on the carousel of time. God is the God over time, before time itself and beyond time itself. And because he's the God over time, he's the one over our lives by definition because we measure our lives in time. That's a primary measure of our lives. So to declare him the one who was, is, and is to come is to say he is Lord over our lives. Not only is he the Lord over time, but he's the Lord over all creation as the creator. Verse 11, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. From the smallest atom to the largest galaxy, all of that has been, been created by God. There is nothing that he didn't create. This great God. Considering his lordship over life and time, considering his holiness, considering his creative power, we're drawn to worship. And as we praise him, it changes our view of the world. One commentator about this passage said this, That God is lord of history and has everything under control helps us view everything else in life the way we should. That God is the Lord of history and has everything under control helps us to view everything else in life the way we should. The writer goes on to say, praise puts persecution, poverty, and plagues into perspective. 
God is sovereignly bringing about his purposes and this world's pains are merely the birth pangs of a new world. Do you see life that way? So we put God at the center and worship of him at the center. Everything else falls into place. There's another reason to focus on heaven. If we're called to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven, then worship is to be our central form of obedience, but that can be reversed. All obedience should be a form of worship. Jewish understanding is that if we, ha we hallow God's name by how we do everything, we worship him, we declare him holy, we set him apart as we live for him. Our call to focus on heaven is to be those who understand what it means to live out heaven here. A question occurred to me the other day. Am I interacting with people today as I will interact with them in heaven? Am I trying to match up the person I am now to the person I'm going to become by God's grace. That's what it is to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. There's another reason to focus on heaven. Not just a call to be faithful and glorifying to God here, but it is also the key to hope in the midst of discouragement and death and loneliness and temptation. Revelation 7 says this, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We need to have that hope now if we're going to be effective here. We need to resonate with the hope of heaven. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. There is a rule that you're not supposed to have long quotes and sermons, and I agree with that rule, with the exception of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Lewis wrote this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Lewis goes on to say, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He closes by saying this, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under 
or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, pointing to heaven. Why does focusing on our hope of heaven matter? Because discouraged Christians are de-energized Christians. It is hard to reach out to others if your world seems dark. Likewise, faith is caught. It's to be infectious. And joy is to be the primary mark of Christians. Joy in God's goodness, joy in God's promises, joy in the hope of heaven. Joy that this world is not the only world that is. You see, we naturally pass on things to others that bring us joy. And we hide things when we are in pain. And our joy primarily comes from our hope, not from our circumstances. Thinking of heaven and its glory overcomes the sense that this life is only about suffering. Focusing on the glory of God in heaven and our worship ahead changes the way we see the world here. And brings us joy. It's an old saying. Christians are so heavenly minded they are no earthly good. Perhaps you've heard that. But honestly that's not generally our problem. We are too often so earthly minded that we are of little good to the kingdom of heaven. Let me close with two stories. One is about my daughter Sarah when she was in seminary. A single woman heading toward her 30s. She said week after week she'd have the experience of going to church, seeing all of her friends, rejoicing in the worship, but then she had to go back to her apartment alone. And she trained herself, as she said, grace on a Sunday morning to close her eyes over her little lunch alone. And picture heaven. Picture the throngs worshiping the Lamb. Picture the sense of being together, not alone. And then to give thanks to the Lord in the midst of her loneliness. Do we close our eyes and envision heaven? That's what John is pointing us to do in the book of Revelation what God's desire is for us. Another story. A single mom whom we know recently got word that from the teachers at the preschool that her four-year-old daughter was acting out in an unusual way. She was being too nice. But they knew something was wrong. Her regular feistiness was missing. 
So later that day, the mom lay down with her daughter and she was putting her down and she said, why are you trying so hard to be nice? And the little girl responded, if I'm really good, maybe dad will come back. Now, I don't know what you would have done. I don't know how you would have responded. My temptation would have been to say, it's going to be all right, everything's okay, don't worry about it. But rather than doing that, the mom told her four-year-old daughter that one day in heaven, all the sad things would be over. And all the broken hearts would be mended. And that brought true God, godly peace into that little girl's heart. She had a tr the little girl had a true sense of wonder when she heard these words. She resonated with the hope of heaven. And my question to you today is, do you resonate? Do you live in the hope of heaven? Let's bow our heads for prayer. You are truly the God of wonders here, Father. But they all point to the unimaginable wonders ahead. Help us to see the Lamb seated on the throne. Help us to be worshiping here in preparation for there. Give us hope here in the midst of discouragement and pain. A confidence that we will be a part of the company of heaven, not because we earned it, not because we were being nice enough or good enough, but because your son stood in our place, died in our place, and brought us new life through the forgiveness of sins. Change us into hopeful people, joyful people, that that joy may be contagious and we may share it in a hopeless self-centered world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.